be back. Nix and I had uh, two weeks, just under two weeks in the UK. Um, we got to go to a conference. Um, if you didn't know it, our church is part of a movement called Advance. It's a network of churches. Um, there's churches in the US, there's churches in Europe, there's churches in the UK. Wayne Noland, lots of your friends in the UK say hi. Um, there's churches in Africa, there's some churches in Asia and Australasia. And uh, every two years, we as church leaders just get to go back together and see each other. But COVID meant that we hadn't seen each other for almost four years. And uh, you can imagine when uh, you're in the trenches leading churches across the world and you get to be back together. So we took over the sleepy little town of Bournemouth in the UK and had 500 church leaders from all over the world get together. So every coffee shop you went into was filled with advanced church leaders, and uh, you can imagine how much fun that is. So it's great to be back. I think some of my um, sort of highlights of being a part of this movement of churches is the uh, emphasis on health. We came back with a sense that the movement of churches we're a part of wants health doesn't just want growth at any expense. Leaders to be charging the hills without necessarily first growing and being healthy as people. And uh, that should make you feel safe, by the way, because uh, we don't want to uh, just be kind of a community of people who have people trying to take over the world, but actually we haven't let God take over our hearts in terms of health. And so that was a, a highlight. Also just a love for the, for the world, for people who don't yet know Jesus. And then I think the beautiful priority that was really a treat for me was that we're doing this thing in friendship, that we're not an isolated community on the uh, tip of Africa, but we've got brothers and sisters, churches dotted around our city, churches dotted around our province, our country, our continent, and actually across the globe who are going through much the same stuff that we are and are partnering with us. And, uh, and so it's a wonderful thing to be part of. We're going to keep giving feedback. We've got some videos and some things we want to share with you. But over the next while, we just want to expose you to some of the amazing things that we're a part of, being part of this beautiful thing called Advance. Okay, got your Bibles? Open up. Got your booklets? Open them. We're in verse 26 of uh, chapter 1 in James, and uh, I am falling more and more in love with the book of James the more I read through it and the more I study it. So we're in verse 26. I'm going to read it, pray, and then we are going to dive into James's beautiful wisdom for gospel living. Those who consider themselves religious, this is the NIV, by the way, um, I preferred this uh, translation to unpack this passage, so if you're opening in your booklets, it's slightly different, but um, still equally good. Those who consider themselves religious and do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that, our, that God, our Father, accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we do ask for help by your Holy Spirit. We know that you promised your Spirit, as Tash has reminded us in worship, and it's your Spirit that helps us to not just read words on a page or words on a screen, but for words to be able to read us and to be able to make sense of the world in which we live. For the scriptures to not live on a page, but to jump off the page and to transform our lives and to transform the way that we think and are. 
And I pray today that as we look into this beautiful book of James, that we catch James's passion for our transformation and for your will in our lives, and that we humbly submit ourselves to doing and being what you would have us do and be as we live this beautiful passage out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, who remembers Idols? Do you remember Idols, the, the, the kind of TV show, Idols? Yes, you remember it, right? And who remembers the first, who was the first winner of Idols? Come on. Heinz Winkler. Thank you, Tashis. That's, that's his biggest hero, hence the, hence the guitar on the stage. Heinz Winkler, unforgettable. I, I think you probably, if you're younger than, I don't know, 18, you might not remember Heinz Winkler. But uh, Idols came out, and it came out with a bang. And uh, I think some of the most entertaining parts of Idols was not, you know, getting towards the end and who's going to win. That was pretty fun in the first season. But most of the excitement was in those auditions. Remember those auditions? I mean, it was remarkable. The person would come, you know, it was a bit like this, actually. They would walk out from somewhere behind, and um, they would stand in front of this panel of, of judges, and the judges would say, so, are you going to win idols? Yes, of course I am. Why? Because I sing like an angel. Remember those moments? And there'd be these auditions across Bloemfontein, Pretoria, Joburg, Cape Town. And they would stand in front in these very quiet rooms, and there was no assistance. And these people who believed they were going to win idols and could sing like me had no hope on God's good earth of ever winning idols. But somehow, whether it was their mommy or daddy, who told them they could sing, or whether it was the echo back in the shower that just made it seem incredible to them, they had deceived themselves for long enough that they were willing to go on national TV and believe that they were maybe going to win it. My goodness, it was, I mean, I'm not, I don't actually do well with lots and lots of awkward moments. Eventually, I'd need a break. I'd switch the TV off and go, how does this happen? You guys laughing are probably similar to me. Eventually it gets tiring. But that concept of self-deception is pretty real. In fact, James, I don't know if you pick it up, but right at the, uh, at the end of verse 26, he says, Those, uh, and, and people who do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. This concept of self-deception is actually quite common. And James has a concern that even followers of Jesus, or at least people who think they're followers of Jesus, could actually deceive themselves and have a kind of faith and a kind of worship that is not a real one. That there can be a kind of self-deception that filters into a person's mind and heart and life that eventually leaves a big disconnect between what they say about themselves. Yeah, yeah I'm a Christian and what's real about who they actually are. It's not just a case of, I can sing, but you can't. It's a case of, I really think I'm a Christian, I really think I'm following Jesus, but some of the fundamentals are actually not there. And James is writing here to try go, I don't want any of that. And, and you might go, but why is that necessary? Why would we need to hear this message? Well, I don't know if you've read the news lately. I don't know if you've listened in on the last two to five years of the church. In fact, you could go back for a long time. 
How many church leaders have fallen by misusing money or misusing their sexuality or abusing or whatever it may be? And, and let me tell you, if church leaders are, are not doing it great, then how do we know the rest of the church aren't? I suppose I'm not trying to bash us or feel bad about ourselves so we all limp out of church. But it is evident that unless we read passages like this, we may find ourselves perpetuating the cycle of self-deception. Pitch up at church, do all the right stuff, smile your way in, smile your way out, thumbs up, yeehaw, and actually you might be self-deceived. And your religion may have a level of worthlessness to it. And James writes this and goes, I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. I want us to have a true religion. Now, maybe we should uh, just consider this concept of self-deception a little more seriously. I think of uh, Jordan Peterson, not necessarily saying I agree with everything he says, but he says this. He says, there's little more terrifying than the possibility that you could come to a crisis point in your life when you need every faculty you possess at that moment to make the decision properly, only to find you've pathologized yourself with deceit and can no longer rely on your own judgment. What a scary thought, that you can so self-deceive that you've run out of ability to even make good judgment. And, and, and we do, we watch it all over the show. There's a community of people watching going, don't do it, don't get into that relationship, it's abusive, it's gonna hurt you. But there's so much self-deception that we go, the person believes that this is really good for them. We, we, we watch it all around us. It's a, it's a haunting thought. And, and James has this deeper, con, uh, this deeper care for each of us and our faith that we wouldn't self-deceive, that we wouldn't let ourselves off the hook, that we would have an authentic faith, a true religion. Now, James understands because he loved the proverb-type literature. He loves proverbs. He often quotes proverbs. I think of Jeremiah 19, which, uh, 17, verse 9, which says this, The heart is deceitful of all things. And beyond cure, who can understand it? Who can understand it? Isn't that a fascinating passage? He's basically going, the heart can deceive you. We can deceive ourselves. It is possible, all of us. There's not one of us who doesn't have the possibility to kind of live in a type of deception. And James wants us to be free from that. And he wants to give us a couple of markers in our life to ensure that our faith, our religion our way of following. You see, this word religion is, uh, is probably not the way we understand religion in our generation. We, when we think of religion, we just divide up the world and go, you're either a Hindu or a Muslim or a Christian, and those are religions. In a way, that, that kind of is what he's saying, because religion is about reverence or, or worship of something. And everyone had a kind of religion in that time. But, but James is now going, do you know what true religion is? True, true worship is? If you want to say you're a follower of Jesus, I want to teach you what it really means to be a true follower of Jesus, to know what actually matters in the life of following Jesus. And I also think it's important at this point because we can find ourselves, if you listen to this message wrongly, thinking that Roger's going to give us a list of things we must do. And James is going to tell us what we must do. And if we do those things, it's all right. You need to listen right to the very end because James is using these as a kind of litmus test to see, is there authentic faith? Is there true worship? 
But he's not saying, if you do these things, it's all good. He's saying that this is the fruit of something where the root has gone deep. And so he's calling us to test the, the fruit, but making sure we know where the root is. And so we're going to look at three signs that James gives us that you're not deceiving yourself into a kind of false religion. Sound good? Great. And it's not an exhaustive list. Uh, John Calvin says this, James does not define generally what religion is, but he reminds us that religion without the things that he's mentioning is nothing. Does that make sense? Like a good parent, you could say, I'm going to give you some parenting advice. You need to nurture, you need to care, you need to teach. Right, that's good advice. But it's not everything about parenting. It's just three really good pieces of advice. This is not the list that says this is everything about what true religion is. So here's three things to ensure we're not deceiving ourselves into false religion. Firstly, considered speech. Considered speech. Did you pick that up right in the beginning? Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. He firstly says, if you have no care, if you have no concern, if you do not take a rein over your tongue, you do not think carefully about what does and what does not come out of your mouth, the words that you speak, if you have no real concern for that, then there's a chance you haven't caught the beauty of the message of the gospel. There's a chance you haven't understood that actually the gospel message is the gospel message of God who created the world by the power of his word. This is a fascinating and beautiful concept, by the way. James is, is tying right into the beginning of creation, which says that the, cre the world was created by the power of God's word. It's amazing, you almost get this picture that as the Father speaks, the very spoken word of God in creation is the hands and the life of Jesus. He's the one who brings creation into life. And so when you read in John chapter one and it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God, nothing was created but by him we realize that God values words. In fact, Jesus himself is the living word. Words are crucial. They matter. They have the power of life and death. Never forget one of the most terrifying words I heard was Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, when you get married, your words have both the power of life and death over your spouse. Be careful how you use those words. This was before I was married, and I just remember going, whoa. The words you use can affirm your spouse to the stars, but you can also crush them into the dust. The words you use over your friends, over your children, over your parents, they can either affirm them and empower them, or they can crush them with such profound intensity. Think back to the words that have been spoken to you. All of us are a product. Largely, the wounds that we carry and the scars that we bear are often because of the words that have been spoken over us. Hey, the, the, the things that we've discovered about our gifts and our strengths have often been because somebody has helped us to discover them. Somebody has, in a moment of glory, in a moment of, of joy, looked us in the eyes and said, I see that in you. 
well done. That's really amazing about you. Whether it was a parent or a friend or an aunt or an uncle or a teacher who's used words to bring life. But James says the tongue is like a stallion. It is strong and it has ferocious thighs and it is made for running. And if you don't hold on to those reins for dear life, you will do what I did many times as a kid. You will fall off and there will be so much pain. Anyone fallen off a horse? Come on. Thank you, Zender. Yay. It's not fun, right? You hold on to those reins because you know this horse is stronger than you. It's amazing that this little muscle inside of our mouth is so profoundly strong. And James says, do you have a rein on that? And especially, do you care about whether you have a rein on that? Do you care? Or are your words just... That's just what happens. This thing has a mind of its own. I just can't seem to stop at these words. Do you know, just gossip. It's just what I do, you know? I just heard the story and I just told it. That's just what happens, you know? So what? Or do we care? James is much more concerned, not about whether we say the perfect thing all the time, but whether we care about putting a rein on our tongues, whether we have it under control, whether it's used for the glory of God or not. How are you doing in caring about the words that you use? They can be profound. I hope that as you're listening, you're not primarily or only going, oh, got to stop this. I hope that in a part you're thinking, who can I get out, get to after this meeting, during this meeting, and pull aside and bring courage to and put faith in because this tongue of yours has such profound power. Secondly, he doesn't just say that we should have a kind of considered speech be careful about our words. He also says that we should have compassion for the vulnerable. Remember, we're testing. We're, we're saying, is there, is there a real faith? Is there some real worship going on? You could have lots of stuff missing in your life, says James. There could be a lot of blind spots in your faith. But if you have no compassion for the vulnerable, if you have no care for people whose plight is, is, uh, is vulnerability and poverty and pain, if you simply just learn, have, have, have found it easy to just write that all off with, with no concern at all, your faith in Jesus may have a kind of defectiveness about it. It may be a little off. James writes and he says it simply. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. Orphans and widows. Probably a bit different in our generation, but in orphans and widows, James is thinking specifically about the most vulnerable in society. He, he understood, and, and, and in that time, we need to understand that orphans and widows were just the hardest people to survive. You see, what happened in Roman times, a, a beautiful book to read, is Tom Holland's book called Dominion. And in the time of the Romans, uh, sort of, you know, the Roman Empire, early sort of AD 100, 200, 300, up until 400, the Romans had very little interest in human life. If you were strong and you could survive and you could contribute to the empire, you were valuable. If you couldn't contribute and you weren't strong, which was often women and babies, you didn't have any standing. You had no contribution. And so if you didn't have a husband, or if you didn't have a parent who wanted to look after you, you were worthless. Believe it or not, there were dumps 
in all these cities. And people would dump unwanted babies, particularly, particularly baby girls. Just dump them on the dump. James's heart was moved by this because he understood the heart of Jesus. When the church came into existence in the early first century, things began to turn around and quicker than expected. Writing about St. Gregory in the early first, uh, late first century, early second century, and another woman by the name of Macrina, listen how it's written. Gregory, more clearly than anyone before him, traced the implications of Christ's choice to live and die as one of the poor to its logical conclusion. Dignity, which no philosopher had ever taught, might be possessed by the stinking, toiling masses, was for all. Dignity was for all. There was no human existence so wretched, none so despised or vulnerable, that it did not bear witness to the image of God. This was unthought of 2,000 years ago. This was just totally out of the ordinary. People weren't all filled with dignity. Only the successful had more dignity than the less successful. And if they died, they had no dignity. Hence, they tried to humiliate people on cr crosses and all kinds of other disgusting methods of torture. Another person, Macrina, who had this relationship with Gregory and inspiring each other towards compassion and justice. Macrina would take a tour or make a tour of the refuse tips. So hard to believe. Those infant girls she rescued, she would take home and raise as her own. Whether it was Macrina who taught Gregory or Gregory Macrina, both believed that within even the most defenseless newborn child, there might be glimpsed a touch of the divine. James writes, so early on in the life of the church into a world that cared so little about human dignity. And dignity was only given to those who produced and, and contributed. And they looked at what seemed worthless. And they went to the refuse tips and they picked them up. And they loved them and they nurtured them. And the early church was marked by compassion. It was marked by a care for the vulnerable and the poor and the marginalized. I know that with a sea of need around us, this is tricky. We live in a country that feels very similar to the Roman Empire. We live in a Western world talking about the dignity of human life and, 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 and the love of actual life. And it is incredibly complicated. And it is very painful. And because of that, some of us are paralyzed by the sheer overwhelming nature of it. And we go, it's just too much. I don't know where to stop. Some of us are paralyzed by frustration because we look and we go, it's not my fault. I'm so glad Macrina and Gregory didn't say that. Maybe we get paralyzed by the complexity of it. I just don't know how to help. If we feel all these things, can I suggest a few things as we move towards the pain of a society and a world in which we live? Firstly, start by recognizing the vulnerable in your own world. Don't try to fix the problems of Western society or corruption 
What about just starting with the friendships and the people that are in your very life, in our very church, who are vulnerable on multiple levels? Maybe it's in your workspace. Maybe it's people who, who live close to you, who work close to you. Maybe it's people you even employ who are deeply vulnerable. The question is, is do you know them? Maybe right now, write a list. Maybe it's a time for you to freshly write that list and realize that they don't have the comforts many of us have. They don't have what so many of us have by way of just social uh, uh, sort of uh, strength and social capacity. Many of us, if something goes wrong, some of us will help each other. So many other people don't have that ability. Hey, secondly, don't simply supply things before we supply relationship. Hey, I, I'm so excited for warm-up winter, but I finished warm-up winter last year, and I thought maybe we should stop it. Because piling up a parking lot full of clothes with no relationship for me is a problem. <laughs> it's not ideal. We can give our clothes away and then go, tick, did what Roger said last week. And I want to tell you that filling up a bucky or ten of clothes has not done what James told us to do. If anything, it could make it worse. We may find ourselves thinking and self-deceiving that we are a people of justice because we give some clothes to people, even maybe our best clothes, but we don't have any relationship with any of them. That's why we're working as hard as we can as a community to ensure that one, our lives are building relationship with the vulnerable in our society. Each of us individually, we're calling you, we're calling ourselves and saying, it's not enough to be a church on mission, it's about each individual going, who is coming across my path that I know and I relate to and I care for and I know their situation and I know their kids and I know what they're thinking and I know what they're worried about and I know they don't have a retirement and I know that they might be getting scammed with the little money they do have and I'm gonna do what I can to help them. We're also working with TZN, Yuri and myself and the elders. We're working together to, to empower more of us to help people who are struggling with job readiness, to not just get them ready by getting them through a course, but actually helping people when it comes to actually doing the course and then connecting and building relationships, us with them. Many of us have much more by way of uh, experience to actually help people and walk with them, become their friend and help them to find meaningful employment. And once they've found it, to still keep each other's numbers and to keep loving each other because we're meant to help people. We're meant to become friends with people in vulnerable situations. We don't just supply things, we supply relationship. We find out, we remind ourselves who we've got, we pray for them. What about we pray now? Why don't you think of the three people in your life who are vulnerable? If you don't have one, then go ask God for one or 10 that he'll bring, a, bring a, across your path that you could love. Jesus, you love the poor. In fact, you chose to die a poor man's death. You chose a life of poverty, not comfort, not wealth. All was available to you, yet you chose to define yourself and to set yourself in with the lives of those who had little. And Jesus, as we come to you, we do ask that you would move our hearts and that you would coach us as a people 
not because we want to prove our religion is real, but because we want to be people rooted in you. We want to be people who catch your heart. God, we don't say this with condemnation. We just ask for your compassion. We don't say this because we need to do more, because we're feeling guilty. We say this because we want to catch what you've got in your heart of love. We pray that you coach us in this, in your name. And then the final thing, hopefully I won't cry as much in this point, is consecrated lives. Consecrated lives. He finally lands and he says, this is also what true religion is. This is what it really looks like to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. He's simply going, you know what? I think you understand this, but I hope you remember this. The world in which you live kind of is, is going, flowing in a different direction to the direction of Jesus Christ. The way people live, the way people believe, the way people uh, believe about marriage, the way people believe about sexuality, the way people believe about money, the way people believe about uh, an act in, in uh, kind of one-on-one relationships, all of those things are largely and often very different to the way of Jesus. And he says, a very strong term here, he says, you could be polluted by it. You can be polluted. Your, your thinking, your way of being can be polluted. Who of you likes playing Uno? Oh, good. I, I, I don't mind it. I got a little frustrated playing Uno the other day, to, to put it lightly. Tempers flared a little, and it's not because I got the plus four card, but I do get that often, and that really does get me down. We were playing, and, and, and you're not going to believe what I'm about to tell you. It's going to shock you. You might not want to come back to this church after I share this. But as we're playing cards, simple Uno, one of my daughters, you know those precious, pure-looking angels, decides that it's a good idea to try sneak three cards down rather than one at the same time. I don't know how many times she got away with this before I spotted her. But she was cheating, to put it bluntly. I don't mind some creative laughter and some creative gaming, but as I said to her, Haynes's don't cheat. And it was quite a fun moment because she was giggling. But then I had this moment. You know, parents, sometimes you get teachable moments. And I said, okay, let's just stop for a moment. And I looked them all in the eyes. And I said, Haynes's don't cheat. We just don't do it. Haynes's don't cheat. We have a different way of being. We are going to play to the very end, and we're going to shake our partner's hand, and we're going to say, well done, even though we came stone last, we don't cheat. And it was one of those moments where probably they all looked at Dad and went, Dad, it's just a game. It's just Uno, Dad. Chill out, bro. Calm down. But I think I got through to them, because cheating sucks. And I don't enjoy cheating, and it was fun. And actually, sometimes we play a game, my mom taught this game to me, called Cheat. You ever play Cheat? That's really fun, because the game of the game is to cheat. But cheating isn't great. And the point of this was not whether we cheated or not. The point was that Haynes's don't cheat. And when you come into the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, when you say yes to following Jesus, you get a whole new way. You get a new surname. You become a child of God. You are his. You are consecrated to him. You have a whole new way of living that has been given to you, and it's no longer the way you used to live. 
Some stuff you bring along because actually it was pretty good anyway. And you had some great habits and you'd had some good stuff. But there's a lot of stuff you check out at the door. You don't bring it through. Hey, we were, uh, got, onto, got into the airport the other day and we had to check some stuff out. We had packed a few bottles of water. And it's like such a sad thing. You're like, oh, we just bought this water. You put it down because you're not allowed to go through the, the checking through with your water and you, you drop it there. The same is true when you, when you come to Jesus. You're set apart for a whole new way. And as you walk to him, he's going to sometimes say, put it down. Don't get polluted. This is a new realm you're moving into. This is no longer the way. Followers of Jesus don't lie. They don't steal. They don't cheat their taxes. They don't sleep with their boyfriends or girlfriends. They don't gossip. They don't get drunk. They don't get high. They, don't fight, uh, they, they fight their addictions as best we can with the help of God and the help of others. We don't fudge the truth to look better. We don't pretend we're generous when we're not. We live lives of increasingly loving kindness as best we possibly can because we don't want to get polluted by a self-centered, consumeristic world that says it's all about me and I do what I feel when I want because that's just not the way of Jesus. We set ourselves apart. We're consecrated to him. What are some of the great pollutants of our generation? Let me suggest a few. I'm not going to social media, because I know some of you know that that's my pet peeve. But by the way, social media is not evil. There's so much good stuff you can get from social media. Here's a few things that I think are polluting our lives. Mindless acceptance. We just thoughtlessly read every piece of information and give it equal value. We take it in, we, whether we're watching uh, Netflix or reading the news, we think all of it is just acceptable and important. Whether we're reading our Bibles or whether we're reading News 24, the same value is given to all of them. And we need to remind ourselves, actually, we need the God perspective before we get this other perspective in our lives. We mindlessly accept. We watch Netflix and we think the lifestyle of so many of these people in these shows is the way that we should live. But it's not. It's not the Jesus way. And then we give Jesus about 13 minutes in the morning after watching other people's lives, lives for 35 minutes, probably three hours the night before. It's a bit crazy, isn't it? And think we're being discipled by Jesus, but so often we're being discipled by mindlessly accepting the lifestyles of our Netflix buddies. Rampant consumerism is another pollutant. We simply just take as much as we can, as often as we can, some of the ancient followers of Jesus developed a, 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 a discipline called the discipline of simplicity, where they chose to draw a circle around how much they owned, and they said, this much and no more. And if I'm going to own more, I'm going to give something else away, because I don't want to just take and take and take, because my feelings are coming first before my faith. The other pollutant is expressive individualism, the sense that actually it's my personal preference before the communal good. Who cares what the, other, the people around me are saying? Who cares about what's good for others? This is, feels great for me right now. The other one is an anti-authoritarianism, where we say no to oversight, to any leadership, to any better perspectives than our own. We make all our decisions alone as expressive individuals, never waiting on some other wise counsel to go, hey, what do you guys think? Thinking of changing jobs, thinking of changing uh, uh, life situations. Most often we make those decisions and then we ask people to rubber stamp it by telling them what we're doing. We live in an anti-authoritarian world, unsubmitted to people, unsubmitted to Christ. I only do if I believe I must, even if wiser counsel say no. Careful of those pollutants. James says, 
set yourself apart. Set yourself apart. Uh, keep yourself from being polluted by the world. How do we do that? We live a life of submission to Jesus and submission to others. Maybe I can call the band up. The gospel is what James is talking about the whole time here. He's talking about this word. He, he mentions the word six times as he gets down here. From verses 19 through to 25 or 26, he keeps talking about the word, the implanted word, the word of God. What is that word? It's the word of the gospel. It's the life of Jesus. It's that which he is trying to say, if you have real faith, if you have true religion, it's because you've understood this word. It's taken root in you, and now the fruit of that is... What we've just mentioned, it's considered speech. It's true compassion. It's actually consecrating your life. It's setting yourself apart because you've got a new identity. You've been given a whole new surname. You're a different person now. And so you set yourself apart. The gospel isn't just a, a kind of story to get you into heaven. The gospel is the message of God becoming king. And when God becomes king, we become his subjects. And we are so grateful that the one who became king is the one who defines love. That's our only saving grace. If anyone else had become king and had ruled the world and he wasn't loved, we would be in serious trouble. But praise God, Jesus is the definition of love. So the question is, is whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or you're brand new to this whole thing, will you bow your knee now? Or will you bow your knee then when he comes back? because he is coming back, and he will return. And the beauty of right now is that this word he gives us can take root in our hearts, and we can say yes to a new start, a new identity, a fresh followership, and to enjoying true life. We're not just Haynes's, in my case. We're sons and daughters. We're made alive by this new word that's been put inside of us. And because we've got this new identity, we don't forget the vulnerable. We carefully consider our speech. We think about how we use our words. And we set apart. We, are, we have a whole new way of being. He takes us into this new place. He says, drop that at the door. Drop that. He does it in love. And sometimes it takes a while and he pries one finger at a time off of the things we think we need. And he slowly shows us that what we really need is him. And he implants his word deeper and deeper and compassion and considered speech and all the other fruit of the Spirit starts to burst off of our lives. Why don't we stand and ask the Holy Spirit to root the word deeper in us? Something I was reminded of at this conference was that even your posture says something of your faith. Lie in bed and call yourself a prayer. More likely to fall asleep than to fall into the presence of God. And maybe as we're asking, you want to put your hands out as a posture of saying, I, I need help, God. I give myself freshly. Maybe if you're committing yourself freshly, freshly consecrating, maybe you raise your hands and say, here I am, have me. Maybe if you're feeling a fresh compassion for the poor, you just put your arms by your side, showing that you're helpless, but that he can help. 
Maybe you're just freshly surrendering to Jesus. And under your breath, you use your words and you say, Jesus, here I am. I don't know exactly what to do. I don't know what the journey ahead holds, but all I know is that I want to trust you. And I want to live for you and I want to love you. Won't you say, come Holy Spirit, invite the Holy Spirit to coach you. This is not about behavior modification. This is about belonging to the family of God. Just like Haynes' don't cheat. Sons and daughters of the King live His way. Come Holy Spirit, help us. Teach us. Show us. Realize it's, I've been quite intense, but I feel the joy of God. I feel the lightness of the King. He, he loves us. He's not, not pulling out the whip today. He's actually putting out His hand. And He's just gently walking us forward. Also feel like He wants to give us courage. Feel like our response of faith may be some courage today to do what we know we need to do. God's gift to us is His Son, and sometimes I feel like our gift to God is to give our courage or our bravery. Say, I will trust you. I'll go. I'll do what you're calling me to do just in the next hour, and then I hope you'll give me the courage again to keep doing it in the next hour, in the next day, in the next month. For some, I think it's your first time you're saying yes to Jesus. I just want to encourage you that as you sing this song, just let Jesus love you. Just sing this song with a fresh abandon and a fresh joy in your heart and you're going to feel the presence and the joy of God in your heart. The Bible's clear that when you put your faith in Jesus, God comes and dwells in us. And for many of us in this room, when we put our faith in Jesus, this, it experientially felt a new warmth and a new peace come in our souls. And as we sing this song, I'm trusting that many of us will actually just enjoy that feeling. Just know that presence of God, some for the very first time. Jesus, we love you, but much more importantly, you love us, and you're with us, and you're king, and we're delighted to serve you. Let's sing.